0: about 50% of the world's population. So all of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, the three great Abrahamic faiths, all of them trace their spiritual roots back to this shadowy figure who lived some 4,000 years ago. The reason Abraham is so significant to us is because of the promises that God made to him. Uh, The promise of, I'll give you land, I'll give you a son, give you numerous physical and spiritual progeny. And basically, through you, Abraham, I am going to put the world back together again. God lavishes this promise on a nomadic herdsman who is childless, who is homeless, who is geriatric, who is 80 years old. And today, what we're going to do is try and uh, wade through a minefield of controversy. We're going to talk about three things, how Genesis chapter 15 relates to the Palestinian and Israeli conflict, how, how it relates to probably the most debated topic in all of church history, the, the theological doctrine of justification, and finally, we're going to consider the vision that it holds for the entire human race. So basically, we are, we are going all in <laughs> today in Genesis 15 where we read these words, after these things. That is after chapter 14 and Abraham's rescuing Lot. After these things, the word of the Lord uh, came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh, oh Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my own household, or, I mean, basically, Eleazar, a servant in my household, will, will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought Abram outside and he said, Look toward he- heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And the Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you for, out from the Ur of the Chaldeans, that is Iraq, to give you this land to possess. And Abram replied, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Probably we just kind of speculate, but... The way the sacrificial system ends up flushing itself out later in the history of Israel is the birds were never dismembered. So sacrificial birds were left intact, and that's the case here. That's my guess, at least. So he cuts, the birds in, or cuts everything in half except for the birds, and then the uh, birds of prey come down on the carcasses, and Abraham drives them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain, or rather, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, or slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, but not until the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, uh, which probably means that According to the bar of justice, the, the inhabitants of the world at that time, they were not sufficiently wicked or guilty enough to deserve the, this fate of justice. But, but uh, God is patient, and He's waiting for them to repent. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying. To your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Ken- Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Basically, I will give you this land forever. If you pull out your atlas, Google Maps, you can kind of trace out the the general uh, boundaries of the land. Stretches down to the south, all the way into Egypt, as it says. And then through the Sinai Peninsula, up through what we would today refer to as the Gaza Strip, up through modern-day Israel. Further to the north, it covers the lands of Lebanon, Syria. And then the Euphrates River, if I'm not mistaken, in its its westernmost location, actually stretches up into the the nation of Turkey. And the million-dollar question is, if God gave all of that land to Abram's descendants, and he does it forever, then don't Jews have a divine right to that land today? And shouldn't we conduct our foreign policy in such a way as to help them occupy that land today? And shouldn't we as Christians be contributing to, you know, save Israel causes, furtherance of um, uh, uh, of, of Israel taking back the land? The, the answer that some Christians give, quite a number of Americans Christians give, is absolutely, yes, the divine right of Israel the sons of abraham to the land is absolute and and it's it's a prominent part of the way that they do theology one of those christians the probably the most famous of them would have been the lord balfour the british prime minister at the beginning of the 20th century he in 1917 penned a very famous letter that was later uh, titled the balfour Declaration And in it, he, he basically promises to European Jews that we will, the Great Britain, do everything in our power to help establish a national home for you in Palestine. So that, that took place 1917 in the middle of the first, first World War. Well, we know what happened, don't we? At the end of the Second World War, the Allies make good on that promise. They look out across war-torn Europe and see just the atrocities of the Holocaust. Millions and millions of displaced European Jews and and say, we've got to do something about this. And in 1948, they bring them aboard the boats through the Mediterranean Sea and land on the, the shores of Israel. In 1948, they formed the modern state of Israel. Now, the Muslims would say, not so fast. The land of Palestine is Waqf land, W-A-Q-F. I I am not good with my Arabic, but Waqf land. And Waqf in Islamic thought, it, it basically refers to an inalienable endowment, a religious endowment that either you could donate something that is Waqf, but waf land is actually the endowment that Allah has given to, to Muslims. This is our land. And for you, for any Muslim to give up any piece of this land, for them to condone any division of the land of Palestine, it, that's traitorous to Islam. They'll rot in hell. And you probably know that most radical Muslims would say the only solution is is for us to drive those you-know-whats back into the Mediterranean Ocean where they came from. So who does it belong to, this land, this contentious land? Does it belong to the Jews? Does it belong to the Muslims? Or does it belong to Jesus Christ? I think it belongs to Jesus. And I say that not like in a flippant way, when God said forever to Abraham, he literally meant forever. And when God said to your, to your offspring, he really meant his bona fide, genetically lined offspring, the, the one faithful and true Jew, the one true son of Abraham, direct descendant of Abraham, faithful to God just like Abraham was, he has rights to the land. Um, and so from, my, I've been from a number of Christian vantage points, perspectives, we believe that all the promises made to Father Abraham find their fulfillment in Son Jesus. Uh, it's all his. And you say, well, that's uh, um, very theoretical. What practical effect does that have? It has tremendous practicality. It means that it is Palestinian land, that is, Palestinians that are united to Jesus. It is, it is Israeli land. Jews who are tethered to Jesus. It's Arabic land. It's uh, Slovak land. It's American land. It is what we believe, kind of the, the most important belief in the whole Bible for us, is that Jesus Christ represents his people. And if you were crucified with Jesus 2,000 years ago, you were co-crucified with Christ. And then 2,000 years and three days later, you were co-resurrected with Christ. And it also means that you are a co-heir with Christ, entitled to everything that God has given to his son. As crazy as that may sound. So, yeah, it's Jesus's. And. It's mysteriously ours, but we don't take up arms to get it. I mean, it's, obviously we're not talking about a 21st century crusade where we, where we are violent and, and trying to apprehend the land. No, because it belongs to Jesus by an inheritance, but he hasn't come into possession of that inheritance entirely yet, has he? It's not until he returns to the, the earth to claim all of his inheritance that he comes into the inheritance, and, and so it is with us. The promise of the land is the promise of a future world that is his and ours. find it very interesting that in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, when the apostle Paul is referring to this event in Genesis 15, we would expect him to say that the promise was to Abraham and to his offspring that they would be the heirs of a land full of flowing with milk and honey, a beautiful land, the land of promise, the land of Palestine. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say he's an heir to everything between the river of Egypt and the river uh, Euphrates. It says the promise was to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world and that's where this promise points to the faithful son of Abraham a faithful Jew who literally fits the bill of the promise and to the day of his return when he inherits the in- entire universe so that's what i think and you can disagree with me on that on, on that interpretation it's uh, these are the question of palestinian and israeli conflict is a massively complicated question. Um, but I tell you, I don't see the feasibility. If, if we are to demand that entire people groups are relocated into their ancestral homelands of several thousand years ago, I just don't see that as a feasible uh, uh, foreign policy, a, a feasible way about doing life in the 21st century. Um, It doesn't seem like feasible national or international policy. You're probably like me. I live on probably one-sixteenth of an acre out in Meridian. So we have a very postage uh, stamp-sized lot. Small piece of land that was previously owned by a developer. uh, That was previously owned by a farmer. Probably through generations of, of farmers. And who, who had it before the farmers, maybe a prospector, and who had it before the prospectors? Was it Nez, Nez Perce land? Was it Shoshone land? You know, some native people group were conquered or displaced at some point or another for me and for you to obtain our postage size, postage stamp-sized lot that we live on today. For, you know, for better or worse, that is how things work. Most every piece of territory in the world today owes its existence to someone in the past having conquered it by war or by revolution. Of course, Palestine has a whole lot of give and take that way. It was originally conquered by the Jews. They overran the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and everybody else. And then their whole history is a history of gaining it and losing it losing it to the Babylonians, losing it to the Persians, gaining it back again, losing it to the Christians, who lose it to the Arabs, who the Jews end up winning it back by a certain form of conquest again in 1948. Uh, I guess my estimation is that there is nothing in the Bible that requires a Christian to take the view that we must support Israeli policy, or we must support Jerusalem as the undivided capital, or we must support extended new and larger settlements, uh, or vice versa, that we must support the Palestinian cause, or we must not support the Israeli cause. I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think that if you're going to evaluate those things, you need to look at places other than Genesis 15. Because Genesis 15 is pointing to Jesus. Again, if we um, if we disagree, I, I know that this is like a really dearly held um, a matter of belief for, for some Christians, and um, we, we may have to disagree. What we can all agree on, what, what are our points of agreement? Number one, we, we can all agree that we need to pray for peace. We need to pray for the safety of those who are caught in between the warring Parties. We need to pray that justice and mercy would prevail. We need we pray that for the leaders that 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 reasonable compromises might be made to achieve achieve a peaceful solution. But what we can really do, like the I think this is what's so exciting, the, the truly unique and special contribution that we as Christians can make to this entire process, we can pray that both sides will see that even if they get the land, they will never be satisfied with it. Like, even if you own every single palm tree and square inch of dirt over there, it will never satisfy the deepest desires of your hearts, and you will still feel like refugees. You will still undergo the feelings of of estrangement and alienation. Because that's the way that this world is heard a great illustration of this the, imagine that you are uh, you are shipwrecked on the red planet mars so your your spaceship has it comes into some trouble and and you end up landing on the red planet and you open the door and as you look out on the the vista you decide you're going to take in a great big deep breath of a fine martian atmosphere <sighs> what happens when you do that Your lungs will experience alienation. (laughs) Immediately. Because this is not your home. It's not an environment that can support the function of your lungs. Your lungs were were never meant to breathe 1.5% oxygen. You need a good, healthy 20% oxygen. Um, Well, the Martian atmosphere, you're just not built for this. It doesn't fit you. Even if you spent the last 40 years of your life working for NASA, looking forward to the opportunity that you would get to go and colonize, be be the first human colony on the planet, Mars. You get there and you discover that you were not made for this place. And I think every human being experiences something like that in life. Our lives are characterized by a sense that we are living in a world that does not sustain and support the deepest desires of our hearts. Like, nowhere is that more apparent than Boise, Idaho. I mean, we live in an absolute paradise here. Like, we have really nice houses, and no crime, and everything is clean, and there there are no panhandlers walking through your neighborhood, and if there were, the police would apprehend them. Our kids go to good schools. We live in paradise, And we still have this massively long list of unmet expectations, a long list of disappointments and sadnesses, a a, a foreboding sense of our estrangement, even though we are living in a relatively good land and good place. So that's what I think we pray. We pray that they would realize, the warring parties would realize, that what they really want is not land. What they want is a land that lasts, with relationships that last, with people who who last in an environment that was suited for them, with people who do not go on to die and decompose. What they really want is the ending of the circle of life. They want... They want it to become, we want it to become a line that is never-ending. Not a circle of life. You know, the the good old circle of life. When you die, you become fertilizer. You are buried, you decompose, and eventually you become fertilizer. But the good news is that out of the fertilizer that once was you, you will eventually grow little plants that the animals will then eat and be able to live off for a little while until they die and and become fertilizer. Isn't that such a lovely thought? The The circle of life. We'll sing about it in The Lion King. It's not a lovely thought because the deepest longings of every one of our hearts is for love to continue in relationships that continue in a place together forever. And that, I think, is what the land points to. Even if you get it, you're going to feel, mass- feel massively disappointed unless you discover what the land points to. It points to Jesus. It points to life in the world to come. So that is a very lengthy beginning to the sermon. We're going on to point number two now, the, and <laughs> the, the doctrine of justification. Justification is a legal court term, um, uh, I've i only been to court two times, I think, in my life. One of them, uh, both of them were very disturbing experiences. One of them, I was on a field trip during college, and we sat in on a murder trial. And if, I mean, those things are terrible. They, they really are. The other deeply disturbing event was a couple years ago, I was pulled over on Chindon Boulevard for performing a perfectly legal U-turn by a Garden City Police officer <laughs> so I went to traffic court to get my either you get my case dismissed or to plea bargain to a lesser charge, but when I went in there and I sat down with a prosecutor, she said i 'm sorry mr cheney i can 't decrease the charges because this is the the lowest level infraction on the books, and so you can you can either fight it or you can pay It seemed like a ugh, such a pain to have to spend another entire day at traffic court uh fighting it and so but the oh yes the the, the thing was is that <laughs> i was innocent and Aaron has never had a, a a traffic ticket before and up to this point i had never had a traffic ticket before so i could do the the quick and easy Thing and pay, but that would mean that I lose. <laughs> we can't have that, can we? So no. So I paid. Yeah, <laughs> I paid. Yeah. Doctors' offices make me terribly uncomfortable. Courts of law make me very uncomfortable. Unfamiliar places where bad things might happen to you. But the people in <laughs> the people in Paul's day probably didn't have that same stigma. See, the courts of law were usually open-air auditoriums. Your cases would be tried at the, the local colonnade down there, or or more often than not at the this, the gates to your city. So these were small-knit communities, tight-knit communities. You understood how the court system worked, and you were familiar with legal words like justification. Genesis 15, verse 6. If you look there. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. For Paul, the apostle Paul, he jumps on this passage. He says this is the most crucial passage in all of the Old Testament because Paul sees here, he sees Abraham as the first justified human being. He's counted as righteous, law court language, declared to be in the right. So instead of me being guilty of of a U-turn that I was not guilty of, instead of the judge saying not guilty, it sounds so much better if he says justified. So this is how, Paul says, this is how somebody comes to be in the right and how they come into a right relationship with God. It is... It is simply by faith alone. If you've been following the Abraham story, you know that the guy had not been the most dutiful servant. He's done some pretty wicked things. He sold his wife into Pharaoh's harem. I mean, come on. But he's justified. He's put in the right. Not by a long to-do, religious to-do list where he checks off the box, but simply because he trusts God and His and God's promises. And that's what Paul says, ah, um, that, that is music to my soul. By faith alone and not works. Not by building altars and making sacrifices, but simply by trusting God and God's promises. Paul says this is the most important message that you, you can find in, in the Old Testament. You'd think that the The sermon would end there. Like God, we'd we'd stop at verse 6 and and everything would be good. But what happens next is the most, it's probably the most fascinating event that ever takes place in the Old Testament. Verse 9. So extraordinary. God says to Abram, Bring me a heifer, a three-year-old heifer, three-year-old female goat, three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and young pigeon and Abram, verse ten, brought him all these, cut them in half. So God says, "Go out and and get these animals." And notice that there's not any more instruction that's provided him. Like Abraham instinctively knows what he is supposed to do next because this is the way that contracts were made. You now in our world, what we do is at the end of all of the fine prints. You have X marks the spot and a little dotted line, and you, you sign on the bottom of the page. Your signature, your John Henry there, says that if I fail to live up to the terms of the contract, then I am legally um, obligated. I, am, I, I will experience liability for, for my failure to do so. Well, in their world, they, they were not a written culture, they were an oral culture. They didn't pull out sheets of papyrus and make you sign at the bottom. What they did is they dramatically enacted out in front of everybody else there who was watching the consequences for failing to live up to your end of the bargain. And this is it. You take these animals. It's, it's barbaric, simply. You dismember three perfectly good animals, and you create an, an aisle. One half on this side, one half on this side. You create, it's like a wedding aisle. And the expectation in a covenant ratification ceremony was that you would walk down the aisle in between the pieces. And that was your way of saying that if I don't live up to my end of the bargain, then may this happen to me. May my limbs be torn. May I Be torn limb from limb and piece from piece, just like the birds of the air and the beasts of the field that are laying here in their bloody, grotesque fashion. May that happen to me. It's a very effective way to make sure people didn't break covenants with you. And it was what a king did with a vassal. The king, the superior in the relationship, he wouldn't have to walk down the aisle. Because you don't need a king to to know that he's going to keep his word. I mean, if you ask the king, are you really going to keep your word? The king might say, um, off with your head, right? But it was the vassal who would walk down the aisle and take the the oath. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And in the darkness, God speaks dark words. He says, Your descendants will be oppressed and enslaved in a land that is not their own for 400 years. Dark words. But after that time, I will bring them back. And I can almost imagine Abraham taking in a deep breath and saying, I know what has to happen next. I'm the vassal in this relationship. you are the Lord. It, it is my responsibility to stand up and to begin to take the walk. Um, maybe maybe he begins actually to stand up. And, and no sooner does that happen than the story tells us that a brilliant light shines out, so bright that it would have been painful for his eyes to see. like it would burn his eyes in their sockets this brilliant light. What is it? it it's, it's a torch spewing flames and fury, a, a pillar of fire. And it's a, a smoking pot. Uh, it's, uh, this, this billowing pillar cloud of smoke. What do you hear there? A pillar of fire, a cloud of smoke, What was it that God led Israel through the wilderness by a a smoky cloud by day, a pillar of fire at night, sparks and smoky fury. And what happens next? Verse 17. And the Lord passes through the pieces. Um, Here in the darkness. Did you notice that the darkness gets repeated twice? Twice. It was like dark, and then it was really dark. It was physically dark, and it was spiritually dark. Here in the darkness, the Lord turns this cultural symbol on its head by doing the most extraordinary thing imaginable. The Lord walks the aisle. God, how how can I know? How can I know that I will have a child and, and that... Uh, My child will have children, that they will have a home, and that there will be a land. How can I know that there will be a bright future for me? How can I be, how can I be sure? And God says, I will take full responsibility. And if I fail to keep my word, then then rip me limb from limb, piece by piece. For I swear by it. I mean, isn't that incredible? And then what you do is you come to Hebrews chapter 6 in the New Testament. It picks up on this theme. Hebrews 6 says that when God looked at, when he looked upon Abraham, because God could swear by nothing else, God cannot swear on his mother's grave. God cannot uh, cross my heart and hope to die because God could swear on nothing else else. He swears on himself. He swears, I will do whatever has to be done. Um, I will send my son to fulfill all of the promises that I made in the covenant. Okay, with that, I want to now stop and have a sing. I I have a few concluding words that I'm going to speak at the table, but, but let's sing Amazing Love first. Uh, one of my favorite preachers is a guy by the name of Charles Garland, who's a pastor in Atlanta, and he asked this question, faith, faith in what? You know, faith is a very elastic term in our, our culture. We talk about, uh, he's a man of faith, they are people of faith, and, and oftentimes what that is simply referring to is, is a person with a relatively optimistic outlook on life, that things are going to be, they're going to turn out fine in, in the future faith in what faith in whom faith is trusting that god will do what he promised to do sometimes you'll hear even christian people say something along the lines of we're just believing god for a new car right now and and i want to i want to say did god promise you that uh, we're just believing god for 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 a better job right now because god knows how how much we, how much I need more more gainful em, employment. God knows how lonely I am and how how much I want a significant other. God, um, and we get angry at God then when He doesn't provide those those things. But did He promise you that? What did He promise you? Did He promise you? Did he even promise you a happy marriage? Or did he even promise you healthy, well-adjusted children? We just sang about what he promised you. He promises to forgive you of your sins and to bring you to life and to give you life in the world to come. And he promises it on such, spect- on such a spectacular order. He takes Abraham by the hand and walks him outside the tent and says he has Abraham look up at the stars. I mean, you and I are always amazed when we hear the latest astronomer's estimate on how many stars there are, like 300 sextillion was the the number I most recently saw, 300 times 10 to the 23rd power. Look up at the stars. Can you think you can count those? On a a clear Middle Eastern night, Abraham could have have counted maybe, I don't know, a thousand or so stars if he was really conscientious. (laughs) But you know that, oh, God was going to give him more than a 1,000. Was God going to give him 300 sextillion spiritual children? Like, that's the metaphor. That's what I'm wondering. God promised that. Are you believing God for that? Do you believe that God's redemption project with the human race... Is that hopeful that there will be that many spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham in the world to come? Like, do you think there's just going to be a few thousand who who barely get into heaven by the skin of their teeth, or do you are you thinking on the orders of magnitude of of the stars above? Because if you believed God for that promise, it's so much richer than. Believing him for all the non-promises that we think he's given us, A life of extraordinary order for the entirety of the human, uh, for, for for the future of the human race. I think that God's saying something like that here. Of course, if he does that, it means we get an enormous family in heaven, an enormous crowd of children around the heavenly banqueting table. Um, On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. After giving thanks to God, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.